Hello and welcome to the ISTC monthly podcast where you can keep up to date with what's going on at the ISTC and in technical communications in the UK and globally. The ISTC is the Institute for Scientific and Technical Communicators and our members work to make scientific and technical information more accessible. I'm Imogen Craigmile, your host. I'm a member of the ISTC and a technical author working in the logistics software industry. Well, here we are in March. This year seems to be flying by, but spring is in the air and I have a real treat for you this month. I had the pleasure of interviewing Ray Gallon, a seasoned technical author, teacher and co-founder of the Transformation Society. To begin, I asked Ray to tell me about where his career began. Uh, you're going to love this. I, I did indeed go to university and I studied stage design. So uh, my diploma is in theater, my degree, uh, and has nothing to do with technical communication. <laughs> um, and it, it is in fact something that I did for, for quite a few years after graduating. I, I worked simultaneously in theater and in radio. In theater, I was a lighting and sound designer and I was a, a radio journalist and producer with the CBC in Toronto. I bet you have some stories to tell about your time there. Well, it was a very, very interesting time to be there. Um, uh, the CBC at the time had both money and airtime available. So uh, people like me, we got to do everything. Uh, and uh, so I, I touched just about every part of radio there was to touch except sports and uh, hard news. I didn't do either of those, but just about everything else I did. So I did arts and culture. I did uh, investigative reporting. I did uh, little short uh, explanatory pieces. Uh, I did science. I did music, uh, mm -hmm. both, uh, both concert music and uh, more sort of popular oriented music and jazz. So all the performing arts, uh, energy. I, used, I, did, I did an energy commentary every week, just a five minute commentary for, for a full year. That's cool. Uh, so I became a bit of a specialist on, especially on nuclear power at the time. So how did that lead to technical communications then? <laughs> well, it's it's quite the story, but um, I after um, several years uh, doing those two things, I decided to move to New York, and in New York I continued to pursue both theater and uh, radio, uh, but it was infinitely harder to do both, and especially to make a living at them. But eventually, I landed a full time job as a producer with New York City's public radio station, uh, WNYC-FM, and uh, later actually became its program manager. I actually had my hands on a major cultural institution of the city of New York, mm. which was, you know, you know how they say everybody um, will, gets their 15 minutes of fame? Yeah. Uh, that was mine, and uh, it was... It was an absolutely wonderful experience uh, to be able to uh, work with all the other cultural institutions in the city of New York and to be able to create because we would 
commission works, we basically uh, set the station up to be like a European radio station more than like a U.S. radio station. And in doing so, I also started collaborating uh, with European radio stations, which is how I ended up over this side of the pond eventually. because of because of those collaborations and and work that that we had done with people especially in France, Holland and Germany. A little bit of uh collaboration with the BBC as well, but not so much as as with the with the continent. Um and uh at the same time, and we're talking about the 80s now. So this was the beginning of the personal computer era. And I was always fascinated by computers. Um, and so uh, as soon as I could afford to, I got me one <laughs> and uh, uh, and started playing with it. And I started playing with computer networking. Uh-huh. So at the same time that I was doing uh, as running the radio station, I was also starting to do computer networking online right. uh, and and playing with that. In those days, it was on closed networks that had names like The Source, CompuServe, uh, Network World Incorporated, uh, or NWI, and and a whole host of others. Uh, The most famous are probably um, America Online, which still exists in some weird fashion, AOL, Mm -hmm. Um, and... uh, and some others of that sort. So then when I uh, moved to Europe, uh, what I wanted to do actually was to focus on that aspect of networking. That didn't really work out. But through some people that I met, um, uh, actually uh, networking, one colleague of mine said, um, you know, there's a, a job going uh, in, for a technical writer if you want it. And here's the weird thing. Through all my life, including as a, you know, a teenager, um, playing with tape recorders and pretending to do radio with a, another friend of mine from high school. Uh, they used to call us those radio kids. <laughs> uh, I always would look at the instructions uh, for some of the things that I would buy, especially the ones that came from Asia and weren't particularly well localized into English. Uh, uh, and I thought, I can do better than this. And uh, I always thought this would be a great way, you know, to to, to make a living or to, to do something. So when this colleague said to me, you want to work in technical communication? I said, sure. Yeah. <laughs> so I went, I went to meet his agent um, the next day. And two days later, I was working at General Electric Healthcare, which was my first real tech writing job. And uh, needless to say, I learned everything from a combination of intuition and on the job. So I've never actually been trained as a technical communicator outside of my actual work. Um, Fortunately, I took to it. Uh, (laughs) Originally, I I, I saw it as a way of supporting some of my other habits. Uh, 
And I thought, it's fairly easy to do. It's pleasant. Uh, I don't have to take it home with me. I work eight hours a day and I can do other things. Well, that didn't last very long because it became a passion. <laughs> and um, and I, it, I discovered also that it was every bit as creative as doing theater or radio. Uh, it's not art, but it is creative. And it was a perfect outlet for all of my interests, my interest in technology, my interest in humanistic aspects of applications of technology, and in expressing some sort of creativity. I was able to do all of those things uh, as a technical communicator. And so uh, it really became, you know, my full-time and even overtime passion. I'm glad. I'm glad that you it became a passion for you. And it must have been strange going from the radio that was such a different medium to then going to being a technical author. Do you think, or were there similarities? Actually, there's a lot more in common than you might think, especially to the journalistic aspect. Yeah. Because in both cases, what you're doing is you're explaining something to someone. And for example, doing the science journalism that I did and the energy commentaries and so on, very often you're actually explaining complex uh, concepts uh, or technologies. And you have to do it in terms that the average listener can understand. And the CBC being, uh, like the BBC, a, a national uh, public broadcaster, hmm. has the obligation you know, to serve all audiences and not just elites or not just uh, any one you know, level of society. So we had, and, and they still have, a, a mandate to be as universally accessible as possible. That's also part of what we do in, in technical communication. We have to pitch our, our writing, our uh, information at people at varying levels of experience and with varying levels of affinity for the technologies that they're using and try to help them have better lives, uh, work better, do things in more effective ways uh, without having to tear their hair out. <laughs> I'm not sure we always succeed in that, but that's at least the, the goal. Yeah, that's very true. And I suppose the stuff we write um, has to be factually correct. That's why we talk to SMEs and everything to make sure it's accurate. And generally, journalism right. should be accurate. I don't know if it always is, but most of the time, I think it tries to be. So, yeah. Well, I can tell you, I would have caught hell from my editors if... Uh, if I hadn't fact-checked stuff. During my research on Ray, I had read about the Transformation Society and wanted to ask him about how it all got started. How did I start the Transformation Society? It came out of a conversation with my wife. Mm -hmm. uh, God, it must have been 12 or 15 years ago. Um, we were both have jobs, uh, or had, we're... we're we're now both retired officially, but we haven't stopped working, which is doing things we we want to do. So at the time, everybody was still talking about the information society. And I had already come up with the notion, uh, which I'd presented at one or two conferences, that the way that we were dealing with 
the information society was just the same way as we were dealing with the consumer society. That is that we were treating information as a commodity and that we were all the time just accumulating it. We were getting more and more information and we were getting uh, too much information. And in France, there's uh, an expression which translates as too much information kills information. Uh, and uh, I think that's a, a very wise expression. We're all being overloaded with this accumulation of information. And I'm sure everybody listening to us has seen those charts that show the exponential jump uh, in the amount of information produced year on year over the last uh, 50 years. Uh, so what, what I realized was that we didn't really have a good paradigm for um, what we were going to do in this uh, information society. And so at, at one point, uh, just in, an, in a conversation, my wife said to me, actually, what we need is not the information society, it's the transformation society. Hmm. And I said, ooh, I like that, you know, because we're using this sort of knowledge that we're, this knowledge environment that we're gaining by digitizing everything and by having computers and uh, uh, mobile phones and all the rest of it. We're, um, the idea is that this should be used to transform society in a positive way uh, and to make a more humanist world. Mm. So the initial thought was, let's write a book. Yeah. <laughs> well, that didn't happen. We were both too busy. <laughs> <laughs> so what we decided instead was, let's actually start a consulting practice and call it the Transformation Society. So that's what we did. Uh, we started our company, uh, uh, named it the Transformation Society, and it is a for-profit company, and we do both training and consulting, but it is a for-profit company with a social objective. There might be jobs that could be very lucrative for us, but that we wouldn't do because they didn't fit our value set. Yeah. Um, and there's probably stuff, I mean, I know there's stuff that we've done for free uh, just because it does. We've worked with a, a large variety of companies, but our first client, interestingly, and this this was serendipity, and this was actually, this is one of the most beautiful stories, I have to say. Our first client was Adobe Technical Communication. Wow. Because they asked us to act, actually, well, it's a story. Let me tell the story. Yeah. Um, I, I, I can't remember what conference I was at. It might have been an STC conference, uh, uh, but I, I honestly don't remember. Or it might have been a conference in Europe. But um, some of the people from Adobe Tech, Technical Communications were there. And um, we were sitting together. I was sitting with them uh, at, over, over a meal. And Ankur Jain, who was who was at Adobe at the time, uh, he's still at Adobe, but he, he's in a different department. Uh, he he said, "Would you be interested in doing some webinars for us on um, 
sort of future think kind of stuff and uh you know where you think the the profession is going and so on i said sure i'd love to and and he said if it works out we can maybe also develop some research projects and i looked at him and i said funny you should say that because we're just starting this new company and uh, we we love to do research uh so the first set of webinars I did was about applying cognitive science to user information. Mm-hmm. And I did those uh, really actually as an individual, not as the transformation society, mm-hmm. but that started the whole ball rolling. And I've done actually a workshop built around that uh, at a number of places, including the TCUK conference. Um and then uh, the next year, uh, Adobe contracted us to do a, a, a whole series of projects based around uh, where the new technologies were going and what were the frontiers for the content industries. So crossing boundaries and looking ahead to different technologies and how they impacted the development of content. And that that really got us started. And we did, actually, we did two more projects after that with Adobe. And we're also developing other clients at the, at the same time. And so we've worked now uh, in a, with a variety of different kinds of clients. We've worked with uh, a lot of government and NGO type of organizations related to um, development of ideas for education and communication. We've participated uh, three times now in UNESCO's Mobile Learning Week uh, in Paris, Mm -hmm. which has been an amazing experience because you meet some of the smartest people from all over the world at that conference. Uh, Really an amazing experience. Also, uh, just developing educational theory in general especially what's called smart pedagogy, which is uh, the development of pedagogy in a technological environment, which can include, of course, artificial intelligence and other kinds of uh, technologies that aid teachers in what they do with their students. So it's never about replacing teachers. Um, As people I teach, and uh, my wife is a professional educator as well, and and so we would never think of wanting to replace teachers with machines. Not, and I don't think it's a good idea mm. from an educational point of view. But there are certain things that you can do uh, in a smart classroom uh, that you can't do in a classroom with rows and columns. And uh, it just makes sense uh, in this world, which is expanding so rapidly. And whereas we see at this moment, there are all kinds of unexpected things that happen like the war in the Ukraine. Yeah. uh, You know, that are forcing us to look at different, different ways, at different aspects of our lives and think about how are we going to train our kids? And even training is probably not the right word, but rather how are we going to help them understand the world that they're growing into, which has nothing to do with the world that we grew up in. 
And and I think there's an e e equivalent challenge, for example, for technical communicators and for educators, which is how do you help people to enter into a world that nobody knows anything about yet? Yeah. How do you train kids to take on professions that don't exist yet? How do you ask questions about things that don't exist yet? And how do you answer them? These are, these are huge challenges. And one of the sort of, for me, one of the joys of being in this world of technical communication and content development is that it puts us in the thick of some of this stuff, it puts us right in the center of it. You know, I work for a large company that manufactures um, equipment for, for mobile telephone networks. And um, I remember writing about what was then called GPRS, which was the first data, packet data service that ran on, on mobile telephones. So it was the first time there was anything other than voice telephony. Uh -huh. And I remember writing a manual on packet data systems, which I was very familiar with from my work as a networker, uh, but which was completely new to all these people in voice telephony. And I remember that I wrote it a good five years before the first GPRS networks were deployed. So when you talk about being on the bleeding edge, you know, uh, that was it, really. Yeah. And, and it was a brave new world we were exploring. Well, this makes me think about, you know, I've heard you talk about the fourth industrial revolution before I heard your talk at TC UK last year. Do you feel like with that, with that idea, you're thinking ahead to what is going to come? Well, absolutely. And in fact, the whole idea of information 4.0 as a an informational response to industry 4.0 came out of uh, a conference uh, in Lisbon where um, a bunch of us were, we just got our heads together and, and one colleague in particular, Andy McDonald, you know, said to me, we need to do this. We need to make an organization. And so there were like, four or five of us, I think, that started talking about how to do it and created what eventually became the Information 4.0 Consortium. And um, what we did was develop an idea around what we thought information specialists needed to do to... Um, respond to the existence of industry 4.0 or the fourth industrial revolution if you if you like and uh, why uh, it's a fourth industrial revolution is that for the first time uh, in in our history we have machines that are capable of making decisions in our place that is they're not just decision aids they are deciding things mm. and uh, these machines in the Internet of Things, driven by artificial intelligence, um, they are going to be, uh, they already have started, and they're going to be more and more involved in determining how our lives develop. And I saw the term, the term industry 
is one that was invented by the German government. They invented it to describe their particular push. The Germans are very, very interested in standards. They always have been. And so they were trying to push for certain standards. And obviously, they wanted to favor their own industry, uh, who wouldn't, uh, and so their own approach to how these things were going to develop. And they came up with some pretty clear definitions of what they thought Industry 4.0 was. And it includes uh, things like technical information, which is kind of interesting. And it also includes, it also includes autonomous machines and cyber physical systems. That is systems that combine the physical and the cybernetic or the digital, if you prefer. So these systems were all being talked about and in nowhere on the German website, the German government website that described this, did I see any reference to information beyond a very sort of airy statement that data would be converted into information. Right. But it didn't say how, nor by whom, or by what manner, et cetera. Mm. And so this is what gave rise to this whole notion of information 4.0. And I think underlying it on, on the part of all of us who, who uh, started the consortium was the idea that this had to provide a humanistic informational response. And that if we didn't do it, it would be done only by engineers. And while I have nothing against engineers, um, engineers can't do everything. So we need uh, technologists, uh, information specialists, marketing people, product specialists, all working hand in glove to accomplish this transformation society. That's cool. Yeah, you, you're so knowledgeable about these things. <laughs> well, one of the things that I like to say is jack of all trades, master of some. Oh, that's a good one. So, <laughs> so I don't have one specialty, but there are areas that I know more about than others. And I don't pretend to, to be an expert in AI, for example, though everybody seems to think I am simply because I know a lot about how it works generally. You know, but don't ask me to program an algorithm or, you know, teach an AI something <laughs> because I've never done it. Yeah. Uh, I think it's important to be to be serious about these things and to to be honest about what you do and don't know. Uh, and I think there are things that I don't know so well and uh, you know, I, I don't I don't pretend to be an expert uh, in everything, but I am interested in everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I get that. <laughs> Ray had previously mentioned that he and his wife were both teachers. I wanted to know more about his life as a teacher and the courses that he taught on. Uh, first of all, I should say that my mother was a teacher. I'm married to a teacher. <laughs> There's something there's something that 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 must be in my blood that and and it's you know imparting information or helping people to understand things as part of it. Um, I teach in two very different fields in two different master's programs, one in Barcelona and one in Strasbourg, France. Now the one in Strasbourg, France is a master's in 
technical communication and localization. And it's completely online. So I don't go to Strasbourg. In fact, I'm now that now that we're through the, the COVID, the worst of the COVID anyway, we hope. Mm. Um, uh, I'm hoping that I will actually get to go there and spend some time on campus. But it's been online for seven years. So it didn't go online because of COVID. Uh, it was designed to be online. And we have students all over the world. We also have teachers, faculty members from all over the world, uh, which is quite, quite interesting. Yeah. Um, and I teach a course in Information 4.0 there. Right. That's what I teach. Cool. Um, and I love it. And I love the students. Um, so I learn so much from them. And hopefully they learn something from me too. Uh, and and in Barcelona, uh, I teach in a master's program at the University of Barcelona, uh, which is uh, which is about sound art. So that means um, creating uh, audio pieces, as it were. Uh, uh, if you go to SoundCloud, for example. You'll see a lot of original music, but you'll you'll also be able to listen to sound pieces, like the ones that some of our our students make. Or uh, it also includes sound sculptures, and the sound sculptures can be mechanical, so they can be mechanical structures that are meant to be played. Wow. Or they can or they can include electronic electronics and computers and and you know reproduce sounds. For example, uh, as a function of where people are, or gestures they make, and so on, and and this is where I come in, creative radio. Uh -huh. So doing creative sound that is meant to be broadcast on the radio, and that's what I teach. And we have both a presential face-to-face uh, -face version and an online version. Um, and again, we did that before COVID. How have you found teaching during the pandemic? I know, so with the technical authoring course, that was always online, but did you notice any differences with the students or anything like that? Yes, actually, um, uh, not only with the students. Uh, I mean, we, the teachers, we've also changed because of it. Uh, it affects us psychologically, plus... Um, Everyone, again, students and faculty alike, have pressures at home. And the students in our uh, TechCom master, uh, uh, they normally are already working. Right. So these are older students. Uh, I think I, I mentioned to you when we talked er earlier before we started this recording that uh, they range in age pretty much between uh, 26 and 50. Yeah. It's These are people who are either career changing or wanting to improve their, uh, you know, their, their expertise in technical communication or localization because it includes both. Uh, and uh, so they've already got that pressure that they're doing a master's uh, online and working full time and they have families. Mm. When we started having lockdowns and people being at home and uh, 
kids also needing the computer for school and all the rest of it, uh, the pressures on the students uh, are very different. And so, yes, it, there have been significant changes. And I think our psyches are all changed. I know that you often take part in ISTC events, whether as a presenter or a participant. Can you tell me about any research or presentations that you've been working on recently or any events that you're taking part in? Will they be virtual or do you have any face-to-face -face events coming up? I keep getting events that they say they're going to be face-to-face -face and then they become virtual. Right. <laughs> so I'm I'm preparing for two conferences. I'm sort of working on making the second cut for the Omnichannel X conference uh, where I will be, I hope, talking about transmedia uh, and how it fits into the world of Omnichannel. Uh, and that was going to be face-to-face -face in Amsterdam this year, but uh, it's going to go online. And uh, then I'm also taking part in, uh, I'm a member of the Canadian Network for Innovation and Education. And I'm taking part in that conference, which will be in May. And together with uh, uh, my wife in the Transformation Society, we have uh, two presentations that we're doing there. One is, is about instructional flow and how, in fact, the workflow of instruction in um, a world where we have smart classrooms and AI-assisted um, education has to be different from, uh, you know, the teacher standing up in front of the classroom and imparting knowledge. And it's, it's the notion of the teacher as facilitator, guide, and somebody who creates uh, a group ethos in the classroom. So that if you have, you know, kids who are working individually on machines, which are running programs that are getting more and more personalized to them, they can get into a digital bubble. So how do we break that for kids and get their creative juices stimulated? Well, we've got to bring them together. We've got to get them to share their individual experiences with each other and interact and do some group projects as well. Yeah. Um, and and that that's a way that we, we can break through that that isolation that you can get by working only in a personalized environment. And teachers are absolutely key to, um, to, to doing all that. Oh, wow, that sounds excellent. I don't know where you find the time to do all these things. You seem to be so busy and you're teaching and doing talks and then you've got a society and yeah, I don't know where you find the time. <laughs> well, it just happens. We just, we just have fun. I hope you found our chat as fascinating as I did. I'd like to send a special thank you to my guest, Ray Gallon. If you have any questions for Ray, you can find him on LinkedIn. And now for some news. The ISTC is celebrating Earth Day by encouraging members to go paperless. Earth Day is an annual day to highlight the global action required to look after the environment. Earth Hour is celebrated on Saturday the 26th of March, 8.30pm to 9.30pm GMT then Earth Day falls on the 22nd of April. To mark it this year, we are reminding members that you can go paperless with your communicator subscription. If you want to go paperless, just email us at istc at istc.org.uk and let us know, then we will do the rest. In other news, 
A reminder that the Omnichannel X conference is set to go ahead in June and early bird tickets are on sale until the 15th of April. That's it for this month. Join us next month when I will be doing a deep dive episode with CJ Walker where we will explore the future of technical communications and artificial intelligence. If you have a question about the podcast or want to get involved with any aspect of podcast creation, then please email me at istc at istc.org.uk. We are always delighted to hear from you. A new episode is released on the last Friday of every month. I want to thank Ray Gallon once more for being my interviewee and thank you for listening. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please rate, review, download, subscribe and share. You can find out more about the ISTC at istc.org.uk or just search ISTC on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Don't forget to tune in next month. Bye for now.